Hey everybody, I'd like to welcome you to the Merchant Sales Podcast. This is the podcast for merchant sales reps and industry professionals who want to understand the industry and of course learn how to grow their portfolio. We've got a great episode lined up for you today. I'm going to kick it off with an interview about consumer financing, which is really just taking off during this time and even moving forward as we hopefully come out of this coronavirus soon and start to open the economy back up. Uh, you know, are consumers going to have money to make larger purchases? And of course the answer is they might, but they might rather get financing for that. And this is an opportunity uh, for you to provide something exciting to your merchants. Um, then we move into the insider's report. Uh, Patty has some really good information for us today. She talks a lot about some of these new uh, telemarketing laws uh, that went into effect that we're kind of making, even myself, I was a little nervous about, you know, can we still cold call in New York and Louisiana? And so she covers, uh, you know, a lot of that and also talks about some other interesting industry trends that are going on right now. Um, then we get into a very interesting question from the field. It's a question I got from Danny uh, and uh, he had reached out one of an an individual agent in the industry and asked, when is it the right time to transition from being an agent into being an ISO? And so we cover that. So I'm really excited about today's episode. I hope you enjoy it. We're going to jump right in here with our interview. Hey, everybody. I am here today with Bob Lovinger. Bob is the president of FlexBuy. How are you doing today, Bob? I'm doing great, James. Thanks again for having me back uh, on your show. Absolutely. So we we had uh, Bob on here. What was it, Bob? Maybe seems like four or five months ago. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So we we talked about consumer financing, and you know, really with everything going on at the time of this recording with the coronavirus, um, you know, really there's just an increased uh, relevance for this topic of consumer financing. Um, you know, for small business owners, they want to provide these options. Uh, and so before we dive into all that, Bob, I'd just love to get your thoughts in general on kind of the impact that you're seeing with your clients and the importance of consumer financing in this, you know, new reality. What do our listeners need to know about this? Sure. First, uh, you know, I just want to say, James, that, uh, you know, my heart goes out to all the people and families who have been affected, you know, by this, by this virus. For sure. We're going to talk. We're going to talk about financing today, but obviously there's a human element to this that goes, you know, what, you know, well beyond financing. But uh, you know, we'll, you know, we'll do the best we can to stick on course because people have to do business. Right. Um, so you know, before we talk about the importance of customer financing or buy now, pay later, a, a solution in a today's reality, which is far different than the last time I was on the show, it's important to understand where we where we were, you know, prior to this. Right. Uh, I've been in business a very long time. Uh, I think I've been in business through five different recessions, um, some worse than others. I think this one will have the deepest impact short term, hopefully, in our economy. Right. Um, and like, hopefully it won't last very long. Prior to this, um, you know, and these are statistics and studies that I, I throw out there, and this is part of our sales pitch, 60% of U.S. Uh, adult consumers had less than $1,000 in savings and 40% had no savings at all. Hmm. Um, 78% of consumers making a major purchase seeked out financing and 40%, 47% of those people that use financing said they wouldn't have made the purchase you know, without, without the financing. Right. The economy wasn't great. I mean, the economy was churning along, but it had, it had found its pace. Most of the people felt pretty secure in their jobs. And though they didn't have uh, a lot of money, they had settled in on their on their budget. Right. But we got a glimpse of what would happen during a crisis when about a year and a half ago, the government shut down for 
a little bit over a month, and within two weeks, the food pantries were, were, were overrun. Right. Um, so today, you know, here, here's where we are. You know, we just got the jobs the jobs report: five point two million people filed new job claims this week. After six million last week, and now twenty two million have filed since this whole thing has started. More and more people are feeling uh, food insecure every day. For these people, the economic problem is very real and will probably impact. By the time everything is said and done, I think we're going to see an unemployment rate of 20 to 30 percent. Um, but even the rest, and this is, you know, and we're going to focus today on how about the rest of the people? How about the 70 to 80 percent of people who are still working, maybe still have money to spend? Um, you know, how about them? Right. Um, these people, you know, and, and you know, sales and, you know, being a merchant or being a, a, a business is as much psychological as uh, anything else. So even these people don't feel great, right? So everybody's waking up every day with terrible news. Fear has set in. They don't know where their next dollar is going to come from or whether it's going to come. Um, they are less likely to use up the money that they have in the bank or exhaust right. credit card lines because, you know, who knows what's going to happen uh, 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 tomorrow. Um, they really don't know, uh, you, know, what's, you, know, you know, what's going to happen. And um, some of this fear is based on reality, you know, we saw it in the in, in the last recession. You know, when the thing when the economy went down down the tank, all of a sudden banks started tightening up, credit card companies started pulling the plug on people's credit lines, and you know they didn't have much spending power. So here's where customer financing fits in: um, for businesses that sell a product or service that cost a few hundred dollars uh, to thousands of dollars, the pool of, of prospective customers has thinned out. So out of the box thinking is probably more important than ever. Sure. Uh, customers will be looking to turn a, mer a major purchase into monthly payments so they can hold on to that emergency money they have or that credit card they have that they, you know, what happens if the right. car breaks down or what happens if the roof leaks, you know, they need, they need that, you know, that security. So, you know, they, more and more, they're going to want to um, use other people's money and that's what customer financing is. From the standpoint of functionality, you know, businesses that previously sold face-to-face -face have to adjust to a new life where they have to sell um, over the phone or online right, or, right. you know, some, some other way. Fortunately, you know, we live in a time where there's plenty of tools for that. So if they're serving a, selling a product, uh, they can use FaceTime or Zoom to actually, you know, display the product they're selling. If they're selling a service, most, of the, most businesses were already selling over the phone. And, you know, Speaking from, you know, from my perspective, as far as FlexBuy is concerned, all of our solutions are designed to be done remotely. So no face-to-face -face right. is needed. Right. Um, from the standpoint of demand, you know, it's funny. Business owners are funny, and I learned this early on when I got into this business. You know, sometimes, you know, we forget that not everybody wants to be a world beater. You know, some, some business owners just want their, you know, their slice. So, right. you know, one of the things that held up businesses sometimes from signing up for a customer financing a, a solution is is that they were very content with the amount of business that they have so you know this it's it, it's you know it's funny that this has brought businesses out of the woodwork oh, yeah. all of a sudden now <clears throat> Good point. with this uh, pandemic there's more uncertainty they don't know if right. next month's revenue is going to be this month's revenue sure. so you know uh, customer financing has become much much more much more relevant than ever 
So I think really to kind of zoom out and frame that, it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, the reason that consumer financing is so important right now is because obviously consumers are not as willing to take their available balance on their credit cards or their cash reserves to make, you know, semi-major purchases, you know, anything from a couple hundred dollars up. Uh, And so as a business owner, when these, you know, revenues are starting to dip, they're looking for creative ways to make sales. Consumer financing is a way that they can go out to their customers and say, hey, look, you know, we still want to sell you this, you know, transmission job on your vehicle, or we still want to sell you this couch or whatever it is. And we're going to give you the financing to do this so that you don't have to come up with this cash today. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. You know, it's been, it's always been customer financing has always been pitched as that other option, you know? So, you know, right. all, most, most businesses, they'll, they'll, I mean, they'll all take cash. So, um, they'll take, they'll take credit card. So, you know, when you're, when you're a business owner, you have to really decide how far, how far is it that you're going to go to try to make a sale. So right. when things are going status, you know, when things are status quo and a business owner feels they're doing good, they feel like if somebody doesn't have the cash or doesn't have a credit card, I don't have to try harder. So now they, right. you know, now they have to try harder. You know, I think now, and whether they, whether it's reality or whether it's just fear, you know, you know, the perception uh, is there. As a matter of fact, you know, we had our best month ever in March, not even by a little, by, by a lot. I mean, I'm you know, sure. we shattered our, our record in March because businesses now are starting to come out of the woodwork for this. Yeah, I bet. So give us some, some context of what are some business types that, you know, were already really a good fit for this? Um, they're, they're just the ones that, you know, are kind of a natural fit for consumer financing where maybe now the demand is even increasing, as you mentioned. What are some business types where this is just an obvious fit? Okay. I mean, we've always worked across just about every spectrum. And obviously now, you know, things, things have changed. So, you know, the things that come to mind is, are products and services that are must have, you know, so auto repair, uh, home, home repair, legal, you know, the things where mm. this thing doesn't stop it, you know, it has to happen, you know, things happen, still, cops are still pulling over people for DUIs, roofs still, you know, need, need to be fixed, um, sure. cars still break down. So these are the obvious things. The, um, you know, the next things that aren't as obvious is, you know, people are now focusing more on things that are self-improvement. So things like coaching, you know, for instance, and, you know, uh, a remote vocational training are big, you know, people have time now. So maybe they're saying, you know what, it's time to really sharpen my tools and maybe learn something new. Maybe I'm going to make a shift after this is all, this is all over. Right. But it's, you know, it's a combination of things. It's the, it's the, you know, hmm. must have, and it's the things I've always wanted. So it really sounds like what you're saying is as a, as an agent or an ISO right now, you know, looking at verticals and thinking about what are must-haves and especially what are the must-haves and the other things that people are wanting to buy now that cost, you know, anywhere from several hundred to up to thousands of dollars and then going after those businesses to say, look, you know, if you're seeing a decrease in demand, um, that, that may be because your competitors are offer, offering financing and you're not. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. You know, and, and that's always been our our pitch and some business owners have cared and some, and some haven't, you know, so, um, Got it. You know, it's, Got it. it's, that's just the way it is. So here's what I really want to do today, Bob. I'm kind of excited about this because we, I don't think I've ever done a podcast interview quite like this. Um, what I want to do is I want to dive into the sales process a little bit more in detail than I think I've ever done on here because we've already interviewed you, <clears throat> excuse me, in the past. And I encourage our listeners to go back. If you search for CC Sales Pro Consumer Financing, you'll find the episode that I, I did with Bob uh, several months back that goes into more detail there. But what I'm looking for is I know there's a lot of agents and ISOs that are, you know, their teams are remote, they're working from home and they're like, okay, what's our hook? What can we call and sell? And so 
you know, uh, if you were reaching out to a, you know, a merchant, uh, maybe one of these ones we've mentioned, one of these merchant types, um, you know, what is it that you say to a small business owner? What's the value proposition or pitch for them, for the small business owner, if you're talking to them about consumer financing? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, our pitch to business owners really hasn't changed. It's always been always been the same. Studies have shown undeniably that people making a major purchase would prefer to finance. So that you know, that's undoubtable. Uh, for you know, for an extreme an extreme example, look in, look into the auto industry. Where would the car industry be without without financing? Right. So businesses either join in and capture that segment of the market, or they don't. It's really up. It's really up to them. But the long and the short of it is this: it all comes down to a psychology. If you're a consumer, what is easier to digest? Coming up with twenty thousand dollars now, or, or trying to figure in four hundred dollars a month into your into your budget? It's pretty easy, and if, you know it's it's not that difficult to get a business owner to understand it uh, once they're saying, you know what, I'm ready to bring in that portion of the business I was miss- I was missing out on. Um, you know, since none of us remember the great, you know the uh, Great Depression. It was over a hundred years ago. Um, this is probably the most important time we've we've ever seen to include this kind of arsenal into you know for for uh, a business owner. They really have very little uh, uh, to lose with us. And uh, the real smart business owners not only use it and put it in their back pocket to be used down the road. They actually you know lead with it because they understand that consumers that are looking to make a major purchase will be looking for customer financing. And, um, sure. you know, so, so you, you know, if you don't, if you don't put it out there and let, and let, and let the public know they're going to go someplace else. Sure. Absolutely. Okay. So, so as far as the, the, you know, kind of value prop, I think we have that pretty well established that, Hey, look, you know, there's studies that have shown that it's, you know, major purchases, people prefer financing. And I think people intuitively know that. So then let's talk about lead generation. Because one thing I thought about coming into this interview is that, um, this seems to me or sounds like a service where I could maybe get a telemarketer to call for me and generate some interest or run a Facebook ad or something. Are, are there things that you've seen that are working with some of your ISO and agent partners to generate leads in, in this way? Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, this is a great opportunity right now for ISOs and agents to reach out and establish relationships with merchants um, without trying to sell credit card processing. You know, that can, that can come later. So, but you know, you know, you know, uh, you know. Let's face it. Um, right now, probably the last thing a merchant wants is to get a phone call from from a, a salesperson trying to get them to switch their credit card processing to save a nickel. Um, you know, it's great if you have an existing portfolio because probably your portfolio isn't going someplace, but not so great for somebody trying to trying trying to build one. So, you know, customer financing offers the opportunity for an ISO or agent to have a different discussion. So it's much easier to get somebody on the phone, especially during these type of times when you're offering them an opportunity to expand expand their customer base. You know, they're they're all ears right now, and right. we've been having a lot of a lot of agents have been very successful in doing this and really tapping on new doors, getting relationships going because listen, that's what this is all about, right? People do business right. with the ones with somebody that they like. So you can bring up credit card processing later, and that will certainly come up. But right now, you have to solve a problem. You have to solve an immediate problem. So, you know, the, the, the phone is a great way, and it, that's really the only way right now as far as, you know, direct contact because you can't knock on doors because people aren't in. So, you know, the phone is a great way to, to kind of in, entice them with something new, and we make it kind of easy. 
from the standpoint of social media, it's also a great opportunity because there's a lot of people in the profession that are active in social media. But really, what are they saying right now? You know, uh, right. you know, there's really nothing much that they can say about credit card processing. You put something new into your arsenal that you're that you can sell, and now you have something you know something to talk about. So, um, you know, we've done we've always done well with social social media. That's been one of our big, you know. Uh, business inputters and um you know sure. i think i you know i think it's a great time for it because people want business owners want to hear want to hear about new things sure so so a couple couple of things i wanted to touch on um one of them is um you know this is a service that obviously people sign up for over the phone all the time which is great because again a lot of merchant services reps are used to selling face to face can you talk a little bit about the process so if i'm a sales representative um, an individual sales rep and i want to sell consumer financing what does that look like what what has to be done is there a lot of paperwork is there like what has to be done to get somebody signed up for this yeah, well, you know, almost since the inception, uh, FlexBuy has been a paperless business. Um, I guess that's the engineering uh, background in me. So, sure. you know, from the beginning, I've set everything up as, a, as paperless. So we make it quite easy for both our merchants and our sales partners. Everything is done online. We have a simple online merchant application. They can complete it in a, in a matter of minutes, upload whatever documents are needed, which are very little to start, you know, uh, um, proof of business and a, a, some kind of voided check or, or bank letter. And we can get them going, you know, in a matter of a day or two, you know, typically. So we make it very, very easy for them. Uh, from the standpoint of the of the ISO or the or the um, or the agent, we also make it easy for them for them to get started. They can sign up also entirely online with us. And once they get going, you know, we have a full agent resources. So if if you're the type of ISO or type of agent that needs to learn everything and become an expert, you know, we can make that happen. We have agent we have videos and training tools, you know, coming out the yin yang. But for those, for most of them, they really don't. They really have. They they have a main gig. They don't want to have to learn everything new. Right. So we've made it kind of easy. We have a proposal creator app app that we use, where we can literally show uh, an ISO or agent, you know, how to get somebody a proposal of, you know, a, a real customized a proposal, you know, within about an hour from the time they start. So they don't have to become an expert. All they have to know is what kind of business they're going to be talking to, or they're trying to pitch. And it, and it uh, prepares a proposal for them that they can, you know, that they can give to, a, you know, to, to a prospect. And it acts as their cheat sheet as well. So it's very easy. Everything is done online. Everything is done through emails. And, uh, you know, like I said, we're very conscious of it. And that's why when this whole thing hit and we had to make the decision to go to go uh, to go uh, uh, a remote um, I was able to turn that on easily because my people know they can work from any place. And, right. You know, also, you know, so could our partners as well. Sure. And I think it's awesome because one of the things I've been trying to highlight on the podcast the last few weeks is, you know, opportunities like this where, you know, there's really increased demand for this right now and it's something that can be sold remote. So I think for a lot of salespeople that are looking to establish those relationships, looking into consumer finance is definitely a good way to go. Um, I know one other question we had touched on before on the last interview, but I did want to touch on it again because it's such a hot topic. Um, can you talk a little bit? about compensation obviously you know this is different than merchant services but can you talk a little bit about how this works and how much money you know an agent might make by doing something like this yeah i mean i'm not going to get into you know specific money sure. models but you know we have a lot of different programs and uh, solutions that we customize for the for the business typically uh, the commissions run one to two percent of the funded loan amounts on on transactions and our average billable transaction is about six thousand dollars so you know, you're looking between sixty and one hundred and twenty dollars per transaction. So it's a different model than credit card processing, right. where 
you know, maybe you're looking at dollars and two dollars a lot of times, you know. So it's, you know, depending on the kind of business you bring in. I mean, we have businesses that do in the hundreds of thousands of dollars each month. And then, you know, the other 80 to 90 percent of the businesses are going to do deals here and, and deals there. So just like any other sales model of this type, it's about building the base. It's about building right. a portfolio of business so you can have those big accounts where you can make some significant money. But it's not, you know, the great thing about it is, and similar to credit card processing, it's very passive income. So even from the time you get a merchant interested in doing this and they sign up, you're done. You know, we don't expect anything right. else from you. We'll take it from there. We do all the support. We do all the training. We do everything. So there's nothing that a, a partner has to do other than sit back and, you know, hopefully they've connected with somebody that's going to that's going to do volume. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you uh, an agent can make significant money from this if you bring in the right kind of accounts. Worst case is you're going to you know, you're going to build a, ste- a steady base of income. Sure. So it sounds like, you know, what you're saying, I mean, it really does kind of have some similarities to merchant services as far as... Very much so, yeah. Yeah, percentage of volume, basically. But the difference being that, in this case, a business, instead of it being, you know, lots of small transactions, you know, throughout the month, you're getting a, you know, pretty big chunk, you know, of commission off of a funded transaction. And, you know, you may have a business that funds... 15, 20, 30 loans a month, you may have a business that funds one. And obviously the commission is going to vary a lot based on those two scenarios. Yeah. I mean, we have some home improvement companies, for instance, that may do one a quarter, but that one may be a $25,000, $30,000, you know, job. Right. So it's, you know, so the commission could still be 500 bucks and, you know, it's not, it's not, right. it's not something that you can, you know, um, you know, that you can make a living off of, you, you know, you bring in enough of those type of accounts and it becomes a nice portfolio, especially if it's a, if it's, um, you know, a secondary portfolio. Sure. Got it. Bob, always a pleasure. And uh, <clears throat> I think it's such an interesting topic. Um, where would you send our listeners to learn more about FlexBuy and working with you? So if you're an ISO or agent, you can go to uh, FlexBuy uh, with two X's, F-L-E-X-X-B-U-Y.com forward slash partner dash program. So it's FlexBuy.com forward slash partner dash program. You can also email me. I'm at Bob L at flexbuy.com, F-L-E-X-X-B-U-Y.com. And, uh, you know, anything I could do to help you out, you know, just uh, let me know. Awesome. Bob, always a pleasure having you on. I appreciate you taking the time, and uh, I know this will be a benefit to our listeners. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For the past 36 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading the Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at greensheet.com. So James, today I want to start off um, with some with some good news. I mean, it's uh, you know not like great news, but I think it's some interesting the uh, positive news card flight uh, which keeps tabs on small business sales you know based on its cl- client activity reports that overall sales at small businesses increased in terms of both volume and value for the week ending on April 15th right that was last Friday yeah just for wow. everybody's note so everybody knows we were recording this on April 24th right so as of a week ago uh, sales were up that week. It was the first uh, increase recorded since the beginning of March. 
Wow. Yeah, I wonder. I feel like some of these businesses are are maybe starting to. Well, I think a couple things, right? I think the the stimulus, uh, the CARES Act, well, played into that. That's what I think too. Yeah, right. For sure. I think they mm-hmm. finally had enough money that these businesses were willing to take a risk and maybe try something a little more creative. Um, yeah. And then I think yeah. also they're just figuring it out. You know, it's like okay, you know, even our business, you know, which we're we're always kind of remote anyway. We do everything online, but um, you know, uh, we're starting to figure it out too. You know, and how do we work remote and how do we get things done? And so yeah, that's that's yeah, really yeah. good news. And I actually. thought it was really interesting. I was watching the news this morning, and there was a story about a, a, a not for profit in Brooklyn, which of course everybody knows New York is really hard hit, and uh, this guy was talking about. He was really sad because of his favorite restaurants were really struggling. Right. And uh, the, they created this um, this this not for profit that would order meals from local restaurants to be delivered to the um, fire department, you know, the EMS people, as well as to the hospitals. Wow, love it. Yeah, and it was interesting. And just as another another aside, I was talking to my brother. Uh, last week, he um, he's the mayor of a small town in upstate New York, about 100 miles north of the city. And he was like, you know, I, I've been, you know, ever since this thing started, I've been struggling with how to help my local businesses. And he found money in a state fund that would allow him to buy meals from local restaurants, which he then distributed to p- local people in need. Hmm. Wow. And yeah, he's like, you know, I have this one. He was telling me, he's like, oh, you know, it was a guy that we both know. He's like, you know, he has this Italian restaurant and he's like, you know, he can't necessarily hire back his wait staff, but at least he was able to keep his cooks employed. Right. Sure. You know, and I think, you know, you're going to see a lot of that, you know, sort of public private cooperation to help people, you know, get through these times. Sure. Um, Sure. Anyway, I wanted to just throw out a few data points yeah. from that card flight um, report. Number of transactions were up 18% week over week. Average transaction size was up 31% over the baseline week, which was the first week of March. Wow. Okay. And that, that's pretty substantial, that's I huge. thought. huge. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, some breakdowns by some verticals. Uh, specialty retail shops saw a 2.1% week over week gain. It's not a lot, but hey, at least they're still open, right? Right. Um, food and drink establishments, ex- excluding bars, uh, saw a 10% increase. I kind of attribute that to, um, and and, and I'm, my, I'm 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 the same way. Um, you know, I try to order takeout from a place that delivers. There's one place that delivers up here on the mountain where I live. Right. And they have to, you know, it's about 12 miles away, and. Uh, one of the first things I did when I got my stimulus check was I ordered a bunch of pizza and a bottle of wine. There you go. Yeah, exactly. That's probably true. People, that's another thing I hadn't thought of. Of course, all the consumers during that week, many of them uh, received those stimulus checks. So Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's so, a good point. Sure. They're, yeah. they're wanting to buy then, something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, and then professional services saw about a 12% week over week increase in transactions. Um but the biggest gains, and and this is interesting, and I and I think uh, it's 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 logical when you think about it. The big biggest gains were credit card payments for invoiced goods and services. Hmm, um, sure. And and since early March, they've seen a ninety five percent increase in payments via invoice. Hmm. Wow. And I think what what you're getting there is a lot of businesses are realizing, okay, you know, maybe. 
we can just send invoices to our customers, um, you know, instead of having them come in and running cards. Of course. Sure. Sure. You know, and again, that goes to like you like you were saying, that goes to people trying to, you know, be more um, innovative. Right. Exactly. Yep. They're looking for ways to make things work and keep business rolling. And, you know, and I think, too, Patty, I think the other thing is. I have to think that, you know, and of course this isn't true in every geographic area, but I have to think that uh, as a whole, small business owners are starting to become a little bit more optimistic um, as we're hearing news. I mean, just even in our state, uh, which was, you know, Pennsylvania was pretty well locked down. Um, governor, our governor, Governor Wolf, is talking about May 8th that they want to start opening some things back up. And mm-hmm. so we're starting to hear some of these dates that, you know, it was like there was kind of this you know, uncertainty hanging out there, which is like, okay, is it going to open in June or July? July like July or August or know, when? You yeah. Know, just sort of, yeah, it was like that cloud of uncertainty or, hanging over right. everybody. And, and while and, while that still is there, of course, I mean, I think it's just that it's starting to feel a little bit more like, okay, this is manageable. It's going to be coming pretty soon. And then, of course, the we should, I guess we should mention on here too that the uh, <clears throat> payroll protection program, uh, you know, additional, what was it? Additional funding. Three hundred ten billion. Three hundred eighty billions. Something close like to that. Four hundred. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I think I think there was a there's of course portions of that that are a little bit um, split up this time, but I think there was at least there's over three hundred billion in just pure payroll pure, protection, yeah. you know, funding. Right. So I think, I think all, all I think that it combined, was like you know, five hundred million was the was a package, and maybe like, uh, excuse me, five hundred billion, and then maybe like a hundred odd billion going to hospitals and so forth. But right. over three hundred was going for us. Yeah. To, to boost the uh, payroll protection. Yeah. Program. So I, th- I think there's a lot of businesses that were concerned about, you know, am I going to get my funding? And so I think there's just been a lot of things that have, have come together. And um, I don't know about you, Patty. I'm actually feeling surprisingly optimistic about the economy. I really am. I don't know. I Maybe I'm the only one. I just, I feel like uh, even our industry, like I think we're going to come out of this. When I'm talking to CEOs of processing companies, their predictions are a little more dire than mine. I think we're actually going to come out of this thing okay. Obviously, there's going to be some some long-term damage, especially with the smaller merchant accounts that may have gone out of business for good. But right. I think volume in general and, and, and margins and all that, I think are going to come back pretty pretty quickly. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling pretty positive about things. We'll see how it goes. And obviously each state's going to be a little different. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing I think we have to, you know, bear in mind, it's going to be a lot different, for example, in the middle of the country versus the, uh, Northeast and the, in the West coast, you know, um, when I look at the maps, you know, with infections and so forth, it's really interesting how much it is, uh, on the, on the two, you know, especially, On the two coasts. Well, it's um, interesting too. Like we talked about last week, even within the states, it's going to be different. Like you know, I would imagine where my business is at. You know, we're we're two hours from Pittsburgh, we're five right. hours from Philadelphia. There's like ten cases in our area. I would imagine we're going to see an opening up faster than say Philadelphia, which is one of the hardest hits, hardest hit exactly. areas. You yeah. know, so you know, and here I'm in Maryland, and I'm in Western Maryland, and you look at you know, we're not that hard hit, but. DC, which is only an hour away, you right. know, and the DC suburbs are. Exactly. Um, and I really think that that's where the social distancing stuff comes in because, you know, you know, people like myself would travel to DC at least once a week. I haven't been in DC in over yeah. a month. Yep, exactly. Um, so, so mm-hmm. yeah, I think, you know, I think, I think a lot of this stuff is starting to, starting to work and, and hopefully we're going to come out of this. And, you know, I'm a firm believer. I've been around long enough to see things like this before and 
I feel like we always come out stronger on the other side. For sure. You know? Um, so another thing I wanted to bring up with people is uh, telephone sales. And I know that you've been talking a lot about telephone have, sales, yes. um, you know, in the, over the past several weeks. And uh, I know we heard from an agent, I believe he was in New York, um, about, you know, laws prohibiting telemarketing sales in that state. And that prompted me to, you know, to investigate this a little bit, right. do some research. And, right. You know, I should say, you know, I think we both agree, even under the best of circumstances, telemarketing laws can be complicated and they do vary For by sure. state. Yes. You know, but and and here I have to add the caveat that I'm not an attorney and this should not be construed as legal advice. Sure. But but I don't think ISOs and merchant sales reps have anything to worry about uh, with regards to these telemarketing prohibitions. Uh, based on my research, there are two states that have st laws in place that outright prohibit telephone marketing during states of emergency. And those are New York and Alabama. Okay. But the New York law only applies to telemarketing to consumers. Okay. And the Louisiana uh, prohibition hasn't been activated. Okay. Got it. Uh, so let me just give you a little, just give everybody a little bit of background on this. You know, in New York, Governor Cuomo declared a state of emergency statewide on March 7th. And that order is scheduled to remain in effect until uh, September 20th. A, a state telemarketing law that was enacted in late 2019 prohibits unsolicited telemarketing calls to any person under a declared state of emergency, which, is, of course, is you know the entire state at this point. Uh, calls made uh, in response to an express written or verbal request or in connection with an existing business relationship are not considered unsolicited and therefore are still permissible. But the New York law appears to be specific to consumer calls. Business to business calls are exempt, hmm. according to, and this is according to several legal briefs. I probably read five or six legal briefs on this from you know different law firms that put out briefs on for their clients and, and, right, right. and other interested parties. Uh, one of those was uh, by a law firm called the Aiken called Aiken Gump, and it notes that. Only B2B calls involving sales of non-durable office or cleaning supplies are expressly prohibited under New York's telemarketing restrictions. Really? <laughs> so yeah. they don't, they don't you call them selling copiers, I guess, And I right? guess that's for, you know, hey, we can help clean you up from coronavirus, you know? Oh, I see. Okay, you sure. You see what I'm saying? Sure, they don't yeah. want anything that's going to come that across as taking the, advantage. Yes, exactly. That makes sense. Uh, and it makes perfect sense, you know? And the law firm Manat, M-A-N-A-T-T, -T, I've never known how to pronounce that. So pardon well, I don't me if either, I did so. it wrong. Yeah, nobody else, nobody else knows either, Patty, so you're good. Just say just say you know how to do it, and, and it's we'll, we'll believe okay. you. Okay, <laughs> so Manat says <laughs> they offered a similar assessment. It said that the New York law, quote, does not explicitly exempt B2B calls, but telemarketing bans, by definition, apply only to customers which are defined as natural persons. Businesses engaged in B2B calls might consider using discretion, however, Manic continued. Huh. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one mean, of those things where it's one of those things where I think, um, and, you know, Patty, I think it's interesting too. It almost kind of goes to this whole um, situation that we're in legally. There, there, there has been a lot of kind of unprecedented things that have happened legally. And so mm -hmm. I think it's one of these times where you do want to have caution because 
you know, popular opinion is so fickle right now and can be turned so easily that mm-hmm. if you're calling and you're, you know, I would be very careful about calling because of the coronavirus situation or whatever, right. you know, you, you know, certainly you have to put the, your call in context with the current reality uh, sure. in, in context with that. But at the same time, you want to be careful because I feel like if a business owner was to reach out to the attorney general and say, Hey, XYZ processing company called me and they're badgering me about this because they have a special deal with the, with the um, you know, coronavirus. You know, I could definitely see the attorney general causing you problems. Um, Correct. Right. Whether or not there's a legal basis for it. I think this is a time where a lot of things are happening that there may not be a legal basis for. And I think people are kind of accepting that during this crazy time. And so, um, yeah, I think that's good advice to kind of like, you know, steer clear of trying to make it seem opportunistic. um, Right. right. And and, and just, you know, be cautious. Yeah. And that's it. I mean, like I said, you know, like like they say, discretion. I mean, what are the what's the term? Discretion is the better part of valor. Exactly. Um, So, you know, yeah, you go in and you say, hey, contactless is really great, you know, and here's how you can help your clients. You don't have to say, hey, coronavirus is sweeping the country. You want contactless and I can do it for you. Exactly. Right. You know, it's sort of that different. So, yep, I agree. And then uh, so just briefly about Louisiana, there the governor Edwards declared a state of emergency on March 11th. But tele and it says telemarketing calls to residential phones. Hmm. are prohibited during states of emergency. Got it. Um, and ex- there's exemptions call uh, for calls made within six months of, a, of ex- an express request or pursuant to an existing business relationship or a prior business relationship that has lapsed within the last six months. Hmm. Interesting. Now, here's the interesting thing about the we- Louisiana law. It states that the Louisiana Public Service Commission has to trigger the prohibitions under the state's telemarketing law as it pertains to, you know, emergent states of emergencies. And as of April 21st, no such determination had been made by the commission. Hmm. And um, I went on the commission's website and they state that, you know, you know, if, if this becomes necessary, we will notify all businesses in the state. Hmm. So, you know, basically, there's nothing to worry about there either. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Wow. Well, that's really good news. And I, you know, it was interesting. I posted about this on LinkedIn and got a ton of comments and engagement about it because people were concerned. So I think it'd be good sure. to be able to post this link and allow them to have a little bit of peace of mind, hopefully, that, uh, you know, this really doesn't apply. And as long as they use discretion, they should be good to go. Yeah, I agree. Awesome. Great stuff today, Patty, as always. Thanks for sharing with us. Sure thing. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. So, Patty, I got a really interesting question uh, from actually one of our All Access Pass members uh, reached out and said, 
when is the best time to become an ISO versus an agent? Ooh. How many accounts do we have to board every month in order for us to consider changing, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. So, boy, this is a – and it's a very complicated question, too, to kind of unpack. Exactly. Um, I think we'd have to start with some definitions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, first of all, we have to start with the definition of an ISO versus a registered ISO. Um, right. So, basically, uh, this is Danny as the agent asking this. You know, Danny, you're already an ISO. Um, an ISO is an independent sales organization, which could consist of one person. (laughs) So by that definition, you're already an ISO. And there are plenty of ISOs, uh, out there who have three, four, five, six, ten 10 agents and they have a business, but the, their company is still operating under the umbrella of a larger registered ISO. Correct. Right. Um, now a registered ISO, what that means is that means that you have paid a fee. Now, Patty, you may be more in the know on this than I am. Last time I checked, it was around $20,000 in fees to to get your brand registered. Are you, if you looked at the, you know, these I, numbers I thought, the, I mean, the last time I checked, the number was closer to 30, okay. 30 or 35, but, but it's still, been a little it's while since I range. looked. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a cheap endeavor. No. And, and of course you're also going to have legal fees associated, et cetera, et cetera. Of course. Sure. And there are also annual fees, which again, last time I looked were around 5,000 for Visa, 5,000 for MasterCard. So it's around 10 Something grand. Like that, sure. yeah. yeah. So you're going to have some annual costs. So, um, you know, so you have that. Now, what do you get in exchange for that? Well, what you get for that is really just the ability to promote your own brand as a credit card processing company. Right. Um, now, you know, I'll be really honest. I am not a huge proponent of making that step too early. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll tell you and why. I think we've talked about this in the past, haven't we, we about the idea of, we have, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's, there's a lot of reasons not to do that it's besides cost. Right. It's it's early. such a pain in the neck, for one thing, to get it all done. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, the other part of it is, too, what are you really getting in exchange for this? So, you know, you can still, if you, you know, consult a competent attorney, which is going to be a lot cheaper than 30 grand, um, you can still use your brand. You just can't say that you're a credit card processing company. So maybe you're a payment processing broker. Maybe you are a small business solutions provider. You know, um, there's different things that you can do to overcome the branding problem so you can still promote your brand while not having to actually register it. Now, the interesting thing, Patty, and where I think this question actually originates from, there's a misperception in our industry that when you become a registered ISO, all of a sudden the floodgates open and you just, you know, now you're at 100% split and, Mm -hmm. you know, you just make all this extra money. And that is simply not true. Um, You know, even the big registered ISOs, they are still under the umbrella of one of the acquirers, TSIS or Elevon or First Data or whatever. Right. Um, And your percentage is purely based on your performance. It's not Mm -hmm. based on whether or not you're a registered brand. If anything, that's an annoyance to them because now they now they have to deal with getting your brand on everything. So. You know, it's it's not like you registering your brand all of a sudden. Well, now everybody's just going to give you these great deals. No, they're going to give you great deals because of the number of deals that you do a month. So if you come in with a stick count of, you know, hey, we do 50 deals a month, 100 deals a month with our team, you're going to get a really good deal. If you come in and you do five deals a month, you're not going to get a very good deal. I don't care if you're registered or not. Um, so the, right. fi- the financial component's not really there for me. The other big piece, Patty, is a lot of these people, a lot of these individuals think, well, I want to register because I want to start building out an organization where I handle my own customer service, my own tech support, things like that. 
But that's uh, that's easy. I mean, you don't have to be a registered exactly. ISO to do that, correct? That is absolutely correct. Um, yeah. Now it does get a little sticky because, of course, now you have people answering the phone as some company that's providing support. Also, you have to get your support number and things like that on the statement. Um, right. So it depends on which company you're working with, but you do have to work through that uh, particular situation. Um, but again, the question there is, are you sure that you're really do you are you sure you really need that expense? Um, yeah, right. the, the odds are that the larger ISOs are simply doing this much more efficiently than you could do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what might be better is to get that, you know, instead of hiring four customer service people and two tech support people, it might be better to hire one really good, talented, almost business partner type relationship where they maybe even have a piece of the business. Somebody who's just a really sharp individual that you really believe in. Get that one person to join you and then work with your ISO to get notified about everything that's happening. And mm-hmm. have like a second level or kind of an intermediary of a person right. that, you know, of course is going to reach out to check and make sure everything went well with the last customer service issue, but they're not actually dealing with it. Um, so I think the, the answer to this question, and then I'll, I want to hear your thoughts on it too, Patty. The answer, my answer to this question of when is the best time, you know, if we're talking about when is the best time to register your ISO and really build out a large organization, um, I would say, number one, there may never be the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, you may be doing very well as an individual. You may have an assistant. Um, you may be, may be making good money, and maybe you don't want your life to be taken over by running a business. Um, I that's do. Where I, that's where I come down as well, right, James. I mean, it's like it's so much work yeah. when you're taking on everything. And, and, and it strikes me that there's a lot of acquirers out there that work with their ISOs and agents you know, to, to create that uh, better customer uh, experience. And, and, you know, I mean, it has more, it seemed to me that has more to do with picking the right acquiring partner, don't you think? It really does. And and no matter which, which direction you want to go and how much you want to take over, you know, it comes down to your partnerships. Um, But I think it's also such a personal choice. It it really is. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I've done it before and I've had my own ISO registered and all that. And, you know, I'll be honest, me personally, Patty, you know, you know me. I mean, I love it. I'm a workaholic, so I think it's I think it's amazing. But I mean, let's be honest. I mean, I could be sitting on an island somewhere right now and be doing just fine. So some people don't want to work like 70 hours a week when they could work five. Um, well, that, that's that's another big thing. And, you know, like you, I am I'm a bit of a workaholic myself. If I'm not busy, I'm crazy. Um, but, right. But but by the same token. You know, if you're really good at selling and you're out there selling all the time, do you really want us to then take some of that time away so right. that you exactly. can be running an ISO? I'm not so sure. Where's the Where's the additional money going to come in to make that worth your while? Exactly. And, you know, it's if people say, well, I'm going to hire a team of five reps. Okay, well, you're going to have to pay those five reps probably 60, 70 percent of your income from those accounts that they sell. And, and how do you know how good – I mean if you're a really good salesperson, right. right? Those five may only sell as much as you do all by yourself, and now you're getting 40% of what you used to get 100% of. Exactly. So yeah. I think it's a very big decision, and I, and I really think it's a personal decision that comes down to what do you want your life to look like? Mm-hmm. Um, how much do you want to work? Um, how much do you enjoy managing people? What's your track record of success? Because just because you know how to sell doesn't mean you know how to hire, fire, handle accounting and deal with negotiations and all of the things that are required there. So there's also the additional skills you need to acquire. So I think it's a very big decision. Um, one last note I do want to make, Patty, is I would say that 
there is a trend in our industry uh, right now moving towards what we call a DBA registration. Right. Um, and this is very interesting. It has it's a very sharp edge. Uh, it cuts both ways. Um, mm-hmm. On the one side, so let me let me say what this is. So you'll some of these larger kind of super ISOs, they're offering programs where they're willing to go ahead and brand the statement and brand the portal and all this stuff um, with your logo. And what they do is they register your logo, your brand as a DBA of their company, right. which is already registered. Right. Now, what this does is this eliminates 95% of the cost of registration, which is like a huge plus. Um, mm-hmm. It also dramatically reduces the time involved. This can have, take place in a matter of weeks instead of a matter of six months because they're not actually registering your brand with, you know, they're, they're just making it a DBA of theirs. Right, um, and they just have to do the, do the uh, switch on the statements and the websites and so forth. Correct. Um, yeah. The downside is that then that company basically owns your brand. Your brand is now a DBA of theirs. Oh, yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. So you do have to be careful, which is that's not really the worst thing in the world as long as you, you know, with the company that you like. But my advice would be if you want to go down that path, I think a good first step would be maybe finding a company like that, having an agreement with them where you can get your brand back after, say, three years or something if you want. Um, Mm -hmm. And then also working with them before you make that big step to make sure you're with the right um, company that you want to be with. Then you take that step. Um, And again, it can be a very profitable step. Um, It's a way to kind of get what you want without having to, you know, actually register and go through all the costs associated. So there's a couple of thoughts. Hopefully that'll help uh, Danny out. Um, Anything you want to add there, Patty? I, I think the biggest thing I would add is it really comes down to who are your partners, Yes, you know, and sure. if, if you have a partner that's really good, very supportive, you feel good about them, you feel like, you know, they're going to they're going to give you a good deal um, and work with you the way you need, you know, need your partners to work with you. That's a much better. It, it would be much better to just stick with them than to uh, spend all that time, all that money and 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 risk what might be a good business model. Um, going away. Yeah, really good point. It's a lot to think about. It's a very big decision. So, hey, Danny, thanks for your question. Hopefully that helped. Thanks for your answer, James. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.